0: The Studio 1.0 podcast is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.
1: He got his start in West Philadelphia, working for the Fresh Prince himself, and later Biggie and P. Diddy. His breakthrough came in 2007, when he met a woman the world would come to know as Lady Gaga. Troy Carter helped take Gaga from unknown to multi-platinum, then broadened his job title from talent manager to tech investor, betting on Spotify and Uber. But his own path to Hollywood was unexpected, coming from a tough neighborhood with a father who did time for murder. Proof, he says, you write your own future. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, founder and CEO of Atom Factory, Troy Carter. Troy, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have Uh,
2: you. Thank you for having me.
1: So you grew up in West Philadelphia, just like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air.
2: West Philadelphia, born and raised.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit about where you're from and and your career in music a little later on. But I want to start with technology. How did you get into tech investing?
2: You know what? It kind of... Fell into my lap. About five years ago, I didn't even know what the terminology venture capitalist was. Working with Lady Gaga in the very beginning, it was very difficult to get the music played on the radio. So we used a lot of social media tools for marketing. So um, Facebook was coming out of .edu. uh, Twitter was on the rise. YouTube was just taking off. And we were using these uh, social media platforms to reach fans directly. And um, a lot of the technology companies basically started approaching us. 75 investments later, <laughs> you know, uh, and now, now I'm, I'm a venture capitalist.
1: You and Lady Gaga started using Twitter and Facebook and YouTube before anyone else in the music industry really did. In fact, they thought those services were their enemies.
2: We kind of used it out of desperation more, to, more than anything else. We were at a stage where these distribution systems and, and gatekeepers um all of a sudden were a little less powerful because of, of this technology where you could speak directly to fans. The first time we heard Gaga's music before she even got signed was on MySpace. She was the first m- mainstream artist to really break out on these platforms. Right.
1: You're an investor in companies like Uber, Dropbox, Lyft, Slack, Spotify. I mean, these are deals that traditional Silicon Valley venture capitalists would kill to get into. How do you get in?
2: You know, I think it helps that that I'm that I'm an entrepreneur. So, you know, I can relate to founders on the ground level.
1: Give me an example of what your secret weapon is as a tech investor.
2: The willingness to drive a a Mack truck through a cul-de-sac when I believe in something. And also I think Empathy, you know, so I know what keeps founders up at night, the anxiety of competition and what's next, you know, and I can relate to it.
1: So let's take Uber, for example. How did you get into Uber? Tell me the story.
2: You know, I I met an entrepreneur uh, by the name of Shervin Pishevar, and he said, you know what, I'm thinking about going into venture capital, and the first deal Shervin called me about was, was Uber. And at that time, they were only in San Francisco. And, you know, the first conversation I had with Travis was about, you know, I'm thinking, the capital expenses around this business of buying, you know, hundreds of thousands of black cars, this could (laughs) never be successful. And, you know, and automatically, you know, Travis said, we're a logistics platform. You know, we're not buying cars. And, you know, he explained it. And my worry was about, how do you scale this company? So
1: Travis was convincing you. You weren't convincing Travis to let you in.
2: Yeah, he was, you know, he basically sold me on the vision. At that stage, you're interviewing each other, you know, and we had a pretty significant network. You know, we helped um, pull you know, Jay-Z and the Rock Nation team into Uber. So it was about us being able to activate our network as well.
1: You're also an investor in Lyft. Yes. So Uber and Lyft are like sworn enemies. How does that work?
2: You know what? We actually invested in a company called Zimride, where John and the Zimride team were doing at, at uh, Zimride. We're basically providing carpooling from uh, dormitories at school to campuses. And six months later, we invested in Uber, that was this black car service, so they were completely non-competitive. And then Uber launched UberX, and then they wanted to kill each other.
1: (laughs) So what's that like, having uh, bets on two opponents?
2: You know, I think some people have the opinion that it's gonna be winner takes all. You know, as we look at this complicated transportation uh, ecosystem, I feel like it's gonna be enough room for, for both. It's gonna be a winner-take-most, <laughs> but I don't think it's gonna be a winner-take-all.
1: What is your philosophy at Adam Factory? What kind of companies and technologies are, are you most interested in?
2: We're kind of focused on uh, huge shifts in consumer behavior. And, uh, and large demographic shifts. When you look at Spotify and songs that we invested in, and kind of looked at, looking at the shift from downloads to streams.
1: What do you see as the main differences between Silicon Valley and LA?
2: The difference is, up north, you have a very mature system here, you know, and you're on, you know, fourth and fifth generation tech companies, and LA. The lineage is more around media and more around storytelling and narrative. And so the tech ecosystem is still very, very young. But when you look at companies like a Beats by Dre, Maker, uh, you know, so you're starting to, as Snapchat, you're starting to see these multi-billion dollar companies pop up.
1: Snapchat, for example, you mentioned $19 billion? Yeah. Are they worth that?
2: I think so. I think I think they'll be worth more, actually. You know, when you see the the amount of videos viewed per day and the, the type of engagement ar- around the product.
1: What do you think about the, the fears that we're in a bubble, that valuations are too high?
2: I'm seeing some valuations that are way too high because the company just isn't worth what that valuation is at that particular time. When you have a rounds that look like B rounds and B rounds that look like C or D rounds, and then the late stage rounds look, you know, bigger than what an IPO would be, you know, you, I think we have to really uh, be smart in our approach to, you know, how we're deploying capital. As a founder, I just would be very careful with burn rates right now. Um, and and making sure I have a clear path to revenue so just in case the winter comes quickly you know we you, you you're prepared as a company to to survive and you're not just surviving off a of fundraising. Do you
1: think winter is coming?
2: Winter always comes. <laughs> it's just a matter of when. Now, I definitely feel like a correction is coming and you know we see a series of many corrections by the way I don't think the bottom is gonna fall out but I do think we're going to see a series of corrections and hopefully, you know, if hope, hopefully nothing catastrophic happens.
1: Where are egos bigger, LA or Silicon Valley?
2: Both. <laughs>
1: People here think they can change the world. Is that is that awesome or is that arrogant?
2: I think it's awesome. You know, because I think, you know, in order to change the world, you have to have big audacious goals and we need Elon Musk. You know, we need Mark Zuckerberg. We need Larry Page. We need Mark Andreessen. And by the way, we need George Lucas's and Steven Spielberg's and M. Night Shyamalan's and, you know, people with big uh, J.J. Abrams. I think we need both.
0: You're listening to the Studio 1.0 podcast brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.
1: You had a complicated and difficult childhood. I mean, how did you overcome some of the things that you had to go through, which no kid should have to go through?
2: We grew up in a really tough neighborhood. You know, we went to sleep to gunshots every single night. You know, it just was something regular. Uh, And, you know, my mom worked 30 years at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, got up to go to work every day, 5.30 a.m. We would pour out the penny jar and count out the pennies to be able to uh, put into the bus, you know, to be so so that me and my brothers could go to school in the morning. We had to boil, you know, hot water because we didn't have hot water sometimes, and that gave me a drive to really make my family proud. To, um, you know, and to work really hard.
1: Your father spent time in jail for murder. Mm-hmm. How did you overcome that?
2: That was definitely. Tough growing up, you know, and um not having a dad there and kind of looking for for that figure that void was always there, and it took a long time for me to to kind of really reconcile that. One bad night can kind of change everything, and you know, he was arrested, did his time, and came back out and pulled his family back together for kids who grew, who grew up now, so many black men in prison right now, and uh, uh, so many kids left fatherless, me being able to show those kids, you know, the script isn't written. You get the, you're, you're able to write the script. I come from where you, where you come from. And then on my father's side, him be, being able to show, you know what? This doesn't need to be your life. The, the, what you did in the past doesn't necessarily define who you are in, in the future.
1: I want to talk about you know, how you discovered music. Like, I know when you were 17, you tried to be a rapper.
2: I was the biggest hip-hop fan. I was the kid that would read all of the liner notes, like down to which recording studio. Um, I used to sneak down, uh, that records were recorded in. I used to sneak downstairs in my grandmother's house and she had this old hi-fi stereo, and I would, you know, listen to the records while everybody was asleep. And in ninth grade, I decided we were gonna form this rap group, you know, me and my best friends. We used to uh, hop the train down to uh, Jazzy Jeff's studio, uh, and, uh, like, literally for months we would do it, and they would leave us. Jazzy Jeff would peek outside, (laughs) never let us in. (laughs) And when one day we ended up being able to get into the studio, And Will Smith was in the studio. And we just walked up to him and said, can we play you some music? The studio was so small, we had to go outside in the snow and do our dance moves in in the snow. And Will drove us home that night.
1: Wow, Will Smith drove you home?
2: Drove us home that night and basically told, told our parents, you know, I got these kids, you know, they're, they're gonna be okay. We weren't a great rap group, so th- our <laughs> careers were cut short. But uh, Will and his manager, James Lassiter, were kind enough to take me under their wing. And I, you know, I was Jazzy Jeff's assistant. I was James and Will's assistant for a long time. Do everything from getting a car wash, run errands, you know, do all of these things. And, um, but, you know, that was my entry into the music business and I started promoting concerts and Big Notorious B.I.G. was one of the concerts I promoted and I met uh, P. Diddy through uh, working with Big and he and I asked him I said tell me what you do you know I want to come work for you and he said "Uh, well your first job is to get me that girl from behind the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do it? I got him the girl from behind the bar and Three weeks later, I was interning at Bad Boy Entertainment.
1: 1999, something big happened. You met Eve Jeffers, Mm -hmm. who happens to be Eve.
2: Originally, I met Eve when she was about 16 years old. And she was my first management client.
1: And you worked with her for eight years.
2: You know, we had an incredible run. And you know, we went from, you know, the good thing is working with Will, I'd, I'd seen this blueprint of you can take an artist who's a rapper, and they can do television, they can do film so my job was just to really execute on the blueprint.
1: And then your relationship ended kind of abruptly <laughs> and you know this another sort of stumbling block for you like yeah. what happened?
2: She wanted to go to another level yeah. and um, and at that time she it wasn't a lot of faith that I, that I could get her there. It was a bit of a heartbreaker you know you spend eight years with somebody you know you become really close and it caught me off guard you know like top of the financial crisis, you know, 2007.
1: And you couldn't pay her bills, right? No,
2: it's like, literally, I got got wiped clean. You know, so it was a tough 18 months.
1: But then, something even bigger happened. You met Stephanie Germanotta, better known as Lady Gaga.
2: Yes. She was
1: an unknown at the time.
2: She had just gotten dropped from Def Jam Records at the time. You know, this girl with these, you know, huge dark sunglasses and fishnet stock and no pants. She and I were kindred spirits right away, just kind of really hit it off.
1: So no one knew who she was, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't even get Just Dance on the radio. Mm-hmm. You guys were playing clubs, like multiple gigs a night, just like pounding the pavement. How did you finally break through?
2: She's probably the hardest working artist that I've ever met. You just couldn't find an artist who put in more hours, studied the game, Studied the craft from songwriting skills the piano um, She wasn't a dancer when we when we met, you know, she was behind the piano and but she worked so hard You know at the choreography all of a sudden, you know, she was a dancer So she wanted to compete on the highest level
1: you guys started her own social network Yeah, little monsters mm-hmm. And I wonder how much that helped take her from here to, you know, well, you international know, you, you, pop star. You don't
2: meet too many artists that really understand digital and social in that manner. So, it wasn't us educating her, it was just as much as her educating us. I remember getting a phone call one day of saying, she was watching the the, the Social Network movie and she said, I want to start my own social network. <laughs> And, you know, and uh, and of course, you know, I made a, f- a couple phone calls. It was a collaboration.
1: So, you know, this is another relationship that ended abruptly for you. What happened?
2: The relationships change and you begin to know what you're really good at. And I, th- I, I kind of started looking at us as I'm really great at being an accelerator, this sort of, you know, we sign you as a kid and we, we go through 30 years, I don't even know if, you know, if that's my personal ambition any, in, anymore. I think after working with, with, with Gaga and kind of going through that heartbreak of, you know, just we worked incredibly hard to build this sort of empire, and then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of get snatched out of it you know is is is, is uh, it was a little disheartening
1: you now manage John Legend mm-hmm. you manage Megan Trainer. yeah how do you go from your you know music manager hat to your tech investor hat and manage yourself essentially
2: it's all one thing you know we're we're an accelerator that supports both artists and entrepreneurs and I'm equally as passionate uh, you know at, at, at about both
1: you were critical in getting the music industry to embrace Spotify. How did you do that?
2: The difficult part is the music industry's been through a lot. You know, we hear the horror stories about these guys are litigious and, you know, they're dinosaurs. A lot of the guys who run music labels really get a bad rap. What the technology industry and some of the press is insensitive to is what... Napster did to to not just to the industry, but to families. I'm watching people lose their jobs, their kids having to be taken out of the schools that they go to. We're not like the finance industry or even the tech industry where you go to college, you get a degree, and you really got something to fall back on. You don't go to school to be a, a record promoter or a concert promoter, so a lot of people like myself you know, we don't have formal education. You know, I I barely got my GED. So when Spotify came along, Daniel Ek did a really good job at okay, you know what? Let me show you guys that I'm a friend and that I'm gonna add value. And my job is gonna be is gonna show people that it's easier to pay for and stream music than it is than it is to steal it. And from there i became a really big supporter because one he's a guitar player he's a musician and he wasn't a guy that's just trying to you know steal from artists or anything like that so
1: give me an example where you said to an artist look this is this is something that can benefit you
2: there have been times where i had to get on the phone with really big managers to be and and who have really big clients and tell them what the downside was to, for them, leaving their product off of Spotify. All of the music is still available on YouTube for free, um, it's still available on the piracy services for, for, uh, for free. So you're missing out on, on a big audience and you're missing out on a revenue stream. And by the way, you're ignoring the future, Hurricane K- uh, Katrina's coming, you know what I'm saying? And you're staying in the house right now.
1: Have you talked to Taylor Swift?
2: I have no. I didn't talk to Taylor Swift.
1: So how does Spotify get over its Taylor Swift problem?
2: I don't know if 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 Spotify needs to get over the Taylor Swift problem as much as as it is. People have to see the future, you know, because free already exists. It's a flawed argument when you say I don't want my music on any service that offers free when free already exists. So is Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift?
1: Wrong? Is she on the wrong side of
2: history? I don't. I won't say it's wrong, but I, but I'll say in general, it's a flawed argument. It's more free than it is than it is paid right now. She's a, a, an incredible businesswoman, one of the best marketers that that I've ever seen, and on top of that, incredibly talented. So I think she does a lot of things right, but when it comes to this specific argument about. We, it, it is proven that freemium works, mm-hmm. that if you give people a free option, there's a huge case study that they, they, they become paid users, mm-hmm. but you've got to offer them a, an, an, an entry point. We'll see the world become a streaming world. Downloads will not last. You, know, you just look at the data right now, it just won't last.
1: What do you think of Apple Music?
2: Apple Radio? Is every Saturday I'm listening to Apple the app Beats One is probably Really? Beats One hands down is one of the best music experiences. When you have DJs like Dr. Dre, like Q Tip, like Pharrell, you know, and you're listening to the records that inspired them. And and is musically is one of the best music experiences. An algorithm can't do that.
1: How do you see the hierarchy between Apple Music and Spotify and Tidal, like how, do you, how does that play out?
2: So you have terrestrial radio that's stronger than ever right now. This is another one that's not going to be a winner-take-all market. is very, very complicated. The streaming market is going to be very, very competitive.
1: What about Tidal?
2: Um, I think the verdict's still out. I think the intent was fantastic. You know, just I want artists to, to own something. And I, I, by the way, I would rather see something that's artists own than something that I, than something that's venture backed. You know, so I think the statement was was, was powerful. And you can't underestimate Jay-Z.
1: Artists are now making the bulk of their money from live events and tours, right? Do you foresee that changing?
2: There'll be multiple revenue streams. But, you know, I think we're going to see revenue streams that don't, that don't exist, right? Uh, like AI and VR. Like when, when artists can scale themselves by doing, instead of having to go out and beat your body up, by doing 120 shows, you know, over a four or five month time span or whatever. When you can do 120 shows in one night because of, because of uh, AI and VR and, you know, and you can create this sort of uh, real experience where you don't have to be, in, be there in the flesh, that's a brand new rev- revenue stream that never existed before.
1: What's next for Troy Carter?
2: You know what, we, uh, we're having fun right now, and also just a future you know, the, the, of supporting entrepreneurs and artists.
1: Troy Carter, an entrepreneur accelerator. I really like that. <laughs> Troy, thank you so much no, for doing thank, this. thank you for Troy having Carter, me. Troy Carter, it's been great to thank have you. Thank you for having studio me. Studio
0: 1.0. Thank you. You've been listening to the Studio 1.0 podcast, brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.